This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it should come as no surprise that old grudges resurface to come crashing down in the newly restored Volsen kingdom, leaving the family once again down to a sole heir, exiled to a faraway land. Also, there's the introduction of a cursed ring and the nasty little pocketses of Trixie Loki. The creature of the week is the leprechaun's drunk, mean cousin, who is definitely judging your poor taste in wine. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 3C, Renewed Shall Be Blade That Was Broken. This is a podcast where I tell the original tales behind legendary stories. Some are popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Previously on the podcast, we started with the story of the Volsungs, the patriarch, King Volsung had a son named Sigmund who pulled a sword from a tree when no one else could, a challenge from Odin himself, insulting his brother-in-law and leading to a spiral of revenge that left Sigmund and his son, Sinfjolti, as the only surviving Volsungs. They returned to their land and Sigmund married Borghild. While out raiding, Sinfjolti and Borghild's brother get into an argument over a woman and decide to settle it with a duel which Sinfjolti handily wins. Borghild is beside herself with grief and rage, and at her brother's wake, she poisons Sinfjolti, who immediately collapses at the table. In his inebriated state, Sigmund can barely process what's happening. He rushes over and tries to rouse his son. Perhaps he's just passed out from too much drinking. But no, he tries to rouse the man and sees that his eyes are open and he's unresponsive. He is dead. Rage flashes over him, and he turns to his wife, who's standing there, holding the jug of poisoned ale, unrepentant. The true weight of what just happened crashes over him, though, and he's hit with grief and sorrow. He takes his son's body in his arms, and he carries him out of the hall and into the forest. I don't know if legendary Norse warriors wept or not, but I can imagine he was thinking about all the experiences he's had with the man. From the first test with the snake in the bag, to the bizarre time where they were werewolves together, to the years they spent in the wilderness, preparing to avenge King Volsung. Then, finally, spending relatively peaceful years ruling a kingdom as father and son. Now Sinfjolti, the only other true Volsung, and the only link Sigmund had to his past was dead, by his wife's hand. Like I said, I don't know if Norse warriors wept, but if they do, Sigmund was weeping. He came to a fjord. He saw a man paddle up in a small boat, only big enough for two. The man, though dressed like a humble fisherman, carried himself with the poise and gravitas of a god. He rode up to the bank with Sigmund and Sinfjolti and asked if they would like passage across the fjord. Sigmund said yes, but was informed that the boat was only big enough for two. The man would have to row Sinfjolti's corpse over, then come back for Sigmund. It was then Sigmund understood. He felt the same feeling he did when he saw that strange vagabond wander into his father's great hall all those years ago. Odin, in addition to a host of other responsibilities, was known to function as a psychopomp, guiding recently deceased souls to the afterlife. Sigmund laid his son down in the boat, 
said goodbye, and watched as the man pushed off from the bank. He walked alongside the boat as it slowly traversed the water, and when it was almost to the other side of the fjord, it vanished. Sigmund paused there for a moment and headed back to his kingdom. Now, I expected Sigmund to fly into a rage and have his wife executed when he got back, or, at the very least, sit and seethe for a while before finally initiating another destructive chain of events which would leave most dead. He didn't do either of those things, though. He apparently took the high road and exiled her from his kingdom. Of course, she apparently died in exile shortly thereafter, so the road wasn't that high. This seemed to be a somewhat common occurrence in ancient history, where an emperor would be betrayed by someone close to him, and he would send that person to some barren place to live out their days. Once they were out of the public eye and public consciousness, they would either fall mysteriously ill after a suspected poisoning, or fall not so mysteriously dead at the blades of imperial soldiers sent to tie up some loose ends. The texts just say that Borghild died suddenly in exile, but given her death's proximity in time to the betrayal of the king, I'm willing to infer that it wasn't of natural causes. King Sigmund grows in renown, and it's said that he's the greatest champion and king of ancient times, because I guess they weren't concerned about overselling his legacy. Sigmund was getting on in age, but he was lonely. Everyone he cared about was either dead or raiding in a far-off land. One day, he hears of a king named Ailimi, and I know that's not the right pronunciation, and of his daughter, who is the fairest and wisest of all women. He knows that although he is well into old age, she's the one for him. Her name is Hjordis. He sent missives to Ailimi, who put together a great feast for King Sigmund, on the condition that Sigmund not come to him with the intention of fighting. Him apparently not having gotten the memo that Volsung feasts, even under the best circumstances, tend to result in at least a few deaths. Sigmund assured him of his peacefulness, and Eileen prepared a wonderful feast as Sigmund traveled to the kingdom. When he got there, though, he found that there was another suitor already there and vying for the princess's hand. His name was Lingvi. As it turns out, he is the son of King Hunding, killed last episode by Helgi, Sigmund's son. Eilimi begins to think that maybe this wasn't a great idea, to invite two suitors to the same feast, one of which being from a family who has been shown to hold generations-long grudges. He decides to wash his hands of the matter, and passes off the decision to his daughter, who decides that, although he's extremely old, she will choose Sigmund, because he is the more famous of the kings. King Lingvi turns and walks out without a word. If you've noticed that the revenge ledger has been getting a little dusty in the years since Sinfielti's death, well, get ready to crack it open again. Sigmund marries Hjordis and rules over both his kingdom and his father-in-law's. Even though Avolsung had killed their father, Lingvi and his brothers see this particular slight as one step too far. They gather an army and march on Sigmund's kingdom. They know the king and send word ahead of their army and its size. They're counting on that Volsung pride. They know that Sigmund, like his father before him, won't run from a fight, no matter how overwhelming the odds. They're right, and though Sigmund prepares as many men as he can, Lingvi and his brother's force far outmatches his. In a move of uncharacteristic foresight for Sigmund, 
he sends Hjordis away into the forest with a bondwoman and the majority of the Volsung wealth, because running off into the forest is apparently his solution to everything. The attacking army jumped off their ships, and though Sigmund was very old and commanded a much smaller army, he was out front. It was said that spirits defended him, and no weapon could even touch him. His sword, the gift from Odin that he pulled out of the tree when he was a young man, cut through shields and chainmail like it was paper. Soaked in his enemy's blood, he lost count of how many men he slew. It looked like the Volsungs might actually win this thing after all. It was then that an odd man entered the fray. He wore a wide-brimmed hat and a black, hooded cloak. He had one eye and carried a spear. If this sounds like Odin, then you've been paying attention. He weaves his way through the battle. No one seems to see him, but he casually dodges sword slices and spear thrusts of men fighting all around him. He approaches Sigmund, and the king sees him. I can't imagine he realized who it was, because he swings down with the wondrous blade. Odin blocks it with his spear, and immediately the blade breaks in two. The mysterious man disappeared. As an aside, Odin is kind of ridiculous, and I can't tell if he likes the Volsungs or not, given that his seemingly meaningless actions resulted in two of their greater tragedies. Sigmund looks down in dismay, but pulls out another sword and keeps fighting. His luck, though, is not as good, and is only getting worse. He's unable to pierce the chainmail of many of his opponents, and he's taking more and more cuts and small wounds. Worse, fear and doubt seem to be creeping into his men, and the enemy line is pushing forward. Finally, the Volsung line breaks, and they're overwhelmed. King Sigmund is mortally wounded, and falls among his men. King Ailimi fares just as poorly and falls with his men. Lingvi saunters into Sigmund's great hall as a conqueror, intending to finally take Jordis as his bride, but finds neither her nor the famed Volsung wealth. He is enraged and sends soldiers to man every crossroad in the kingdom, looking for the woman in the gold. Jordis was in the forest and heard that her father had been killed, but her husband had fallen and had not yet been recovered by Lingvi. She was led to the spot where Sigmund fell. They stepped over countless corpses in the field and heard a muffled yell as they approached. They ran over and pulled a dead man aside, finding Sigmund dying underneath. She hugged him and asked if he could be healed. He said that it would be possible, but given that Odin himself had come and forsaken him, he didn't want to be healed. The sword he was given was now broken. He fought battles with it while it pleased Odin, and now it was time to go. Hjordis said that she would really prefer him alive and taking revenge for her father. He told her that, no, the sword was now in pieces and was meant for another. He then begins to prophesy. She is with child, a son. She should raise him carefully because he will be the foremost Volsung. The sword will be reforged and called Graham, and their son will bear it and accomplish great deeds which will never be forgotten. Sigmund says he's content with this. He bids his young wife goodbye and says that his wounds tire him. He will now visit their kinsmen who have gone on before. He closed his eyes and breathed his last. Hjordis and the bondswoman were in the open field 
and heard noises from the coast. It was a group of Vikings, presumably ones that had come with Lingvi's forces. Hjordis quickly demanded that they switch clothes, and Hjordis posed as the bondswoman. Despite this being super dangerous for the bondswoman, she agreed, because I guess when nobility commands you to do something, even in exile, you do it. They could see the lights of the ships traveling across the coast. They would need to make a run for it back to the forest. They sprint across the open field. On the longship, someone was looking out at exactly the wrong time and saw the two figures running across the field. They looked like women in the middle of the battlefield, in the middle of the night. The Vikings jumped off in pursuit. Hjordis and the bondswoman, not realizing that they were being followed, relaxed after they entered the forest, but they were quickly overtaken by the Vikings who had followed their trail. They were apprehended and taken back to the king. He was named Alf and was from Denmark, and by some huge stroke of good fortune wasn't associated with Lingvi at all. He thought it odd that the bondswoman spoke for both of them, but was shocked to learn that Sigmund and Eilimi had fallen in battle. He also learned that Lingvi was looking for the noblewoman here and all the wealth she possessed. He would absolutely offer them asylum in Denmark. Wait, they knew where the wealth was, right? Yes? Okay, great. He would absolutely offer them asylum in Denmark. They go safely with this new king. Lingvi found Sigmund's body in the field of battle, and though he never stopped searching for Hjordis, he relaxed a bit, and his brothers divided Sigmund's kingdom amongst themselves. Lingvi became the second king to make the fatal assumption that all the Volsungs were dead. King Alf eventually figures out that Hjordis was the queen and not the bondswoman, and they spend a lot of time together. Him impressed by her intelligence and wisdom, he asks for her hand in marriage, and they wed after her child is born. That child, as it turns out, is Sigurd. He's said to have piercing eyes and is raised by the king's household, beloved by all. I should mention going forward that Alf is one of several kings, all sons of a king with a name I can't even begin to pronounce, so I'll say kings moving forward, and that's just in references to Alf's family. Sigurd is assigned a foster father by the kingdom, but he's really more of a tutor. The man's name is Regan, and he teaches the boy sports, chess, and runes, as well as several languages. They become very close, and while it's obvious Regan cares for the boy, he seems almost preoccupied with the boy's rumored wealth. He would ask Sigurd if he knew the true amount of his gold in the king's stewardship, and if Sigurd trusted the kings completely. Sigurd either did trust the kings completely, or didn't even want to entertain the idea of deception, because he always defended them. One day, Regan said that, well, if Sigurd didn't want to be some stable boy of kings all his life, or a vagrant, he should challenge his assumption that his father's wealth remained his, and ask the kings for of all things, a horse. Sigurd comes before the kings and they say, yes, of course, all this wealth is yours, and not only give him a horse, but let him take several out to test them. He's out doing this when he runs into an old man with a long beard. I'll let you guess who this is. As kings are wont to do, Sigurd asks this random vagrant to advise him on which horse to pick, and they take all of them to a deep river and drive them all into the river where all the horses swim back to the shore, except one. It's then revealed that this particular horse is a descendant from Slepnir, Odin's eight-legged horse. He needs to be raised carefully, because he'll be better than any other horse. 
the man disappears, and Sigurd rightly assumes that it was Odin. He takes the horse back and announces that he has chosen the Grey One and names it Grani. This direct contradiction to Regan's assumption that Sigurd was not in control of his own wealth was apparently not enough because days later, he tells Sigurd that you have too little wealth. It vexes me that you run around like a messenger boy. And he wants to tell Sigurd where great wealth can be had. There's also likely great honor and glory in acquiring it. Sigurd's interest is piqued, and he asks about who guards it. Regan replies that it's one called Fafnir, and the treasure is only a short distance from here, in a place called Ganita Hearth. Sigurd sighs. That story? Everyone knows about Fafnir. He's a massive serpent, a dragon, and no one will dare confront him because of his size and ferocity. Regan scoffs. Size? He's no different from other grass snakes. Or at least that's how he would have seemed to Sigurd's forefathers, the legendary Volsung kings. But no. It's obvious that while he has the Volsung name, that's all he has. It's okay to be scared. Sigurd, displaying way more self-control than Marty McFly at being called a chicken, says that he's just out of childhood. Why is Regan, his tutor, saying these things and urging him on towards a dangerous fight with a dragon so strongly? Regan tells him a story. Before the story begins, I want to say that the people in the story have the ability to change into creatures for seemingly no reason. It's not really explained how this happens, so I guess just go with it. Regan reveals that his father, Hrymar, had three sons, Regan, Otter, and Fafnir, the last being the one that guards the treasure. Regan says that he was the least accomplished and honored of his brothers, but he has great skill as a blacksmith. Otter was a great fisherman and actually took the likeness of an otter during the day. He would catch fish for everyone, but would come home late at night and close his eyes when he ate because he couldn't stand to see his food diminish. Fafnir was the largest of the sons, and it said that he wanted to call everything his own. A dwarf called Anvari lived in a waterfall and was in the form of a pike, a curse from a Norn long ago. Otter, the, uh, otter, would come there frequently to fish. As it turns out, three of the Norse deities were walking along and came to Anvari's fall. Odin, Loki, and Honer. Otter had his eyes closed, eating a salmon on the riverbank, and Loki walked up to him, took a large stone, and hit him over the head, killing him. It said that the three gods thought pretty highly of their catch, and skinned the otter. That evening they came to Hrymar, Regan's father's house, and showed off their awesome otter pelt. I know whenever I bash an otter over the head and skin it, the first thing I want to do is show it off to everyone I know. Unfortunately, they didn't know that the otter's father was sitting right there, and it said that the man and the two brothers seized them and imposed a wear guild, a ransom for otter's death. The gods must fill the otter's skin with gold and cover the outside with red gold. I guess this speaks to the power of Fafnir and the father that they were able to extract this ransom from the gods, and the gods entrust Loki with the task of getting the gold. He remembered something odd about a pike he saw when they were at Envari's fall, and went to the sea goddess, ran, and got her net. He went to the fall and waited for Envari, the dwarf in the form of a fish, to jump, and Loki caught him, completely vulnerable. He demanded the dwarf's gold, or else he would send him to the underworld right now. The fish complied and turned over his piles of gold 
but kept one ring back. Loki saw it and wanted it. The fish tried to hold it back, but he couldn't, and warned that the ring, and all the gold actually, would be the death of whoever owned it. Loki laughed it off and took the gold. At Hrydmar's house, they stuffed the skin with gold and piled the gold so that it covered the skin completely. The gods made to leave, but Hrydmar noticed that one whisker was poking out. Odin drew the ring, now called Envaranat, meaning literally Envari's gift, and placed it on the whisker, covering it and meeting the ransom. As they walked out the door, Loki shouted back prophetically that the gold belonged to his son, not the father, and that it would be the death of Hrydmar and the other son. After they left, Fafnir, the largest of the sons, decided that he would be the son who owned the gold and attacked his father, killing him. Regan ran off, knowing that he was no match for Fafnir, and Fafnir took the gold off into the wild, transformed into a dragon, and now lies atop his hoard so that no one else can use it but him. Regan wandered the lands, finally becoming a smith for this king, his connection to his family a secret. The gold has since been called the Otter's Ransom. It all becomes clear in Sigurd's eyes, all the not-so-subtle musings by Regan about Sigurd's fabricated poverty were just his way to get him to settle old debts. Still, if he could defeat this dragon, perhaps he could gain a legacy even greater than his renowned father and grandfather, let alone the gold. Sigurd paused. He could see the old smith looking at him, expectantly. He sighs and says he'll do it on one condition. Regan is supposed to be a smith, and Sigurd needs a sword. If he can make Sigurd a sword worthy of killing a dragon, he'll try to do it. A couple days pass, and the sword is finished. It's not that it's not well made, it's beautiful, but Sigurd can sense that it wouldn't be enough to kill a dragon. He turned to the smith's anvil and broke the sword over it. He walked out of the room, yelling back that if Regan wanted him to kill a dragon, he'll need to make a better sword than that. A couple more days pass, and again Sigurd visits Regan. He remarks that Sigurd is a hard man to forge for, but this one will definitely be able to kill a dragon. Sigmund wordlessly breaks it over an anvil again, and then wonders a lot about the trustworthiness of a man whose brother is a dragon. Regan is forlorn, but Sigmund has a plan. He goes and visits his mother, the queen, and they eat and drink together, having a great time. He broaches the topic about his father's sword. He heard tales from the kings about the day she was rescued, and that his father had given her a legendary sword. Was it true? Did she have it? She said that she did, and he said he wished to have it. A smile came to her lips. She had never told him of the sword, or of Sigmund's dying words that it would be reforged, and that her son would accomplish great deeds. She hands it over to him, and told him of his father's prophecy. He met with Regan, and showed him the pieces of the sword. Regan was offended. He had made this man amazing, pristine swords, and now he was supposed to salvage this mess? His best work hadn't sufficed, so he might as well try this, but he wasn't happy about it. He reforced the sword into Graham. He was surprised by how good it looked, and when he took it out of the forge for Sigurd to inspect it, it said that flames leapt from its edges. Sigurd took the sword and could feel its power. They went to the anvil. Sigurd swung down hard and barely even met with the resistance until he hit the ground. He stepped back and found that he had hewn the anvil in two, and there wasn't so much as a dent in the blade. 
Next, he went to a shallow spot in the river with a tuft of wool. He threw the wool upriver and waited for it to float down. When it did, he aligned the blade so that it was stationary and the wool hit it, sliding apart while barely slowing down. The old smith said that Sigurd had to honor his vow now that he had a sword worthy of fighting the dragon Fafnir. Sigurd looked down at the sword and thought about the last time it had been used in battle, about the last man who had used it. There was something he had to do. He turned to Regan and said, I will fulfill my vow, but first there is another task. I must return to my homeland, avenge my father, and retake my kingdom. That's where we'll leave the Volsungs for this week. Next time, Sigurd will return to the kingdom of his forefathers and fight the brothers that took it from him. You'll also see how to understand the speech of birds. All it takes is fighting a poison-breathing dragon. The birds, as it turns out, have a lot to say about stuff that really isn't any of their business and are kind of judgmental and a little rude. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It's a quick, easy, free way to support the show and it'll help other people find it. If you haven't found it on iTunes, you can go to itunes.mythpodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at jason at mythpodcast.com or follow me on Twitter at at mythpodcast. For the Creature of the Week, I'm sure you've heard of the Leprechaun, but have you heard of his drunker, surlier cousin, the Cluricon? It's unclear whether Cluricons are their own distinct being, or rather just a leprechaun that hits the bottle hard after a long day of gold hiding and shoe repair. Some sources say that they're clearly different from their industrious cousin, and they signify this by wearing a red or white hat, avoiding the leprechaun's trademark green. Cluricons hang out in cellars, drinking all your wine, beer, and liquor, and are generally very mean drunks. They are found swaggering around wine cellars, brimming tankard in hand, singing Irish folk songs. They don't like to spend all their time in the basement though, and sometimes they'd like to get out. Late at night, they will find a dog or lamb, jump on its back, and hold on for dear life, going on a joy ride until the animal tires or is able to shake them off. They then walk back, returning to your home caked in mud in the wee hours of the morning. If you find you have one, you can appease it by keeping your wine or liquor cabinet well stocked. In that case, they will protect your home from thieves. At least thieves that want to break into your house and steal your alcohol. The Clericon doesn't really care about any of your other stuff. If you offend it, it will constantly spoil all your wine, and any attempts to leave it will be futile, as it will just jump in one of your casks, because everyone has wine casks nowadays, and follow you wherever you go. If you want to attract one, you'll need to leave a glass of wine out at night. Oh yes, and you need to have a large, well-stocked wine cellar for him to even consider stopping by. Because while he's not above living in your basement for free, stealing your alcohol, and scaring a sheep into a free ride, at least he can be picky about who he mooches off of. That's it for the show this week. The theme song, which you're listening to right now, is by the band Broke for Free. The Creature of the Week music is by the adroit Steve Combs. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.